Well, like I said, we're super excited for VBS this week. So email Katie today if you still want to jump in. There's plenty of time. We are in the third week of a five-week series called What If the Church? And the idea is for this year, the main theme is what if the church blessed our neighborhoods? What if we as individuals and us corporately as a church really decided, you know what, we're going to lean into our neighborhoods this year and we're going to bless those people around us. So Lance did a great job the first two weeks. We talked about beginning with prayer and the importance of prayer really before we do anything that is of a kingdom mindset, before we do anything that, that we don't want God, we don't want to go and have God tag along. We want to go with God as he moves into our communities and we want, we want to be that tool that he can use where we're at. So we want to begin everything with prayer. And then last week he talked about listening and we want to listen to our neighbors. You know, uh, this might come as a shock to you guys, but as an extrovert, I talk a lot. And this might come as a shock to you. One of the hardest things I do in my day, this is going to seem so silly, one of the hardest things I do every day is keep my mouth shut when I want to speak because that's just not my nature, right? I'm boisterous and I'm big and I, I, want, to, I want to talk about things and I want to have a 30-minute conversation with every single person I, I come across. But little did you know that if, if we're talking, and I've been talking for more than two minutes, there's probably this still small voice in the back of my head at this point going, John, shut up. Let them talk, you know? Because that's not, I just want to talk and I'm so excited about everything. So uh, that was great for me to hear last week, this idea of listening. Like ask, ask somebody to tell you their story and then be quiet. Just get out of the way and let them talk to you and let them, let them pour into you as you're trying to pour into them and, and, and get to know them through their stories. And that's the idea of listening. And then today uh, we're coming to the E of of bless the five-week series or B-L-E-S-S, bless your neighborhood. And we're coming to the middle uh, this week, and, and in the middle of this acronym is EAT. And I, it's, it's a little cheesy, but I just think that it's perfect that it, that is right in the middle because I believe that this is centric to everything. Everything that we're talking about hinges on this concept of eating with our neighbors so we're talking a lot uh, about integrating rhythms into our lives. Uh, Lance has talked a lot about breathing in and breathing out. And so what that looks like for eating is, um, you know, when we breathe in, that's, that's our Christian fellowship. That's the, uh, the body of believers. And we, we come to church and we take communion and, and we go out to lunch with one another. And that's great. That is breathing in. That is something that is energizing for us and, and, and building up for us. But then there's also this component of breathing out where when we breathe in relationship, we need to breathe out relationship, and we need to be actively seeking out non-believers to share that same level of relationship with. And so we breathe in community, and we want to breathe out community. And I think, well, you know, one of the things that we're going to talk about today is um, just how easy and simple that, that is to do. So here's the big idea for the day, right? Eating is sacred, and I think when we think about it, like we all kind of know that that's true. Like eating creates this sacred space. How many of your best friends became your best friends over a meal? How many of your best friends became your best friend because you met at a barbecue? How many of your best friends became your best friends because there's something going on that kind of hovered around this idea of eating with one another? So we're going to look at this, and we're going to look at God's plan. And, and God's plan is that if eating is sacred, and we're going to bless our neighbors— we need to eat with our neighbors. I'll be honest, I'm really glad that line came out right. I Warming up today, I said we need to eat our neighbors like three times in a row. I'm pretty proud of myself. Just pat myself on the back there for a second. So if you want to, turn to Genesis 12. 
whatever. Turn to Genesis 12, uh, verse 2. It's just real short. We're just going to read 2 and 3 real fast. But this is, this is God. This is Genesis 12. This is at the very beginning of your Bible. I actually don't remember what page it is, but it's probably like page 3. Okay? It's, it's seriously one of the first things. And God's talking to Abraham, and he says, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is God's plan from day one. Genesis chapter 12, God's plan is to bless the nations around us through us. And, and, you know, and you take that in the Old Testament context, it even means more because, you know, we're new covenant, right? We're Christians. We're, we're, we're post-cross. And so we live a life where we say there, there is no Jew or Greek. There is no, there is no slave or free. We're all the same on, G, on Jesus' level. Jesus made us all equal. That wasn't the same for Abraham. Abraham was old covenant. And their, their nation, Abraham, the nation of Israel was set apart completely. And they would build up walls and they would keep themselves out because they were to be set apart from the rest of the world. Like we as Christians, Christ has set us apart too. And I think that that, that's a one word difference and it's really big. So as Christians, we're set apart to do good works. And the Old Testament, the, the Jewish faith, Abraham, Israel, was set apart from the rest of the world. Okay, and that's the difference in, in holiness, what holiness looks like in the Old Testament, what holiness looks like in the New Testament. And so from the very beginning, God's intention was to bless all of those around us through his people. And so we see that in Abraham, and he says, and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. It was always his plan. So if we're looking through this series, and we say, I just said, that God's plan has never changed. It was the same for Abraham as it was for the disciples as it is for us we need to eat and bless the people we live with, the people we work with, our families, our friends, our neighbors, our, the strangers. You know, and I don't think that uh, uh, I was thinking about, when I was thinking about eating, I don't know, uh, maybe it's because I got picked on in junior high and high school, but, you know, quick survey, who went to school here? Anybody? Right? Elementary school? Oh, three people. Great. That's awesome. Okay, elementary school, uh, uh, junior high, high school, right? I don't know that we need to flesh this out anymore because if you've been to junior high, you know for a fact, it might be seared into your brain, in fact, that there is no better way to tell if you are inside a certain group or outside of a certain group than who you get to sit with at lunch, right? You go into the cafeteria, and there's all these tables, and you've come from elementary school where you have to sit with your class, and now there's all these tables, and you kind of have this freedom, but all of a sudden there's this fear because you're like, who do I sit with? Where do I go? Where do I get my pizza? There's no teacher standing around telling me what to do. I just have to move. And one of the quickest things you can see is if you go up to the wrong table, right? You see, you know if you just walked up to the wrong table and you try to sit down and you get that Forrest Gump moment where they say, can't sit here. You go, okay, you know, and you're just walking and you're just trying to sit down and become part of a group. And here's the funny thing. That first week of junior high, that first week of high school, whatever table you find to sit with, aren't those typically your friends for the rest of that time? My friends in junior high were the people that accepted me at their table the first week. My friends in high school, I wasn't, you know, I did a lot of choir and stuff like that in high school. It, it literally changed, the, who I sat with at the lunch table in high school changed the course of my life. I'd never sung before. I'd never done anything kind of musically before. And my brother was in choir. My brother's three years older and he was in choir and I couldn't find anybody to sit with my first week of high school. And so I, I saw my brother 
and he had this, oh, God, please don't sit with me kind of moment. But then he's sitting next to all his friends that are inquiring. They're like, John, come over, come over. And I went and I sat down with them. Two weeks later, I changed my schedule. I got into choir, and I'm a worship pastor. And I sing literally every day of my life. And that all changed because of who I ate with my first week of high school. So we know that this is important. There is no quicker way to know if you are inside a certain group or outside of a certain group than whether or not that group will allow you to eat with them. And that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the theology. There's a couple points here. The, the first reason that, that's, that we need to be concerned with that is reason number one is there's this theology of eating. Theology is basically just like the study of God. That's probably the simplest way to put it. And there is this God component to eating. And if we look at Jesus, who is fully God, fully man, if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. If you want to know what man could potentially be like, look at Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate example of, of all those things. He's not an example of God. He is God. He wasn't an example of humanity. He was humanity. Jesus was it at its fruition. So if you want to know what God is like, look at the life of Jesus. If you want to know what your life can be like, Look at the life of Jesus. So we look at how Jesus used eating, and, and the truth is it'd be difficult to nail down one passage, so we're just going to do this quick, brief survey of Luke because Luke uses eating and, and stories about eating and Jesus eating meals and on his way to meals and coming away from meals more than any other gospel writer. So I'm just going to list it. You can write it out. It, it might be on, uh, I don't know if it's on the version app or not, if they have the whole list on there, but... We'll just track down through these real fast. Luke 5, we see Jesus eat with tax collectors at the home of Levi, which is one of the most scandalous things he could do, right? We talk about this. I know that I've talked about this before, too. Like tax, center, or, uh, ta tax collectors were so bad, they were like their own bracket of sinner. They weren't even sin. It was like, it was like there were all these sinners here. There were sinners that had murdered and committed adultery and done all this stuff. And then there were tax collectors. You know, and it's always said like that in Scripture because these weren't just sinners. These weren't just people that had done something wrong. These were people who had betrayed their nation. These were people who had decided to side with Rome and tax their own people and give that money to Rome. And the thing is, is most of them weren't honest. So in that they were tax collectors, that also meant that they were thieves because Rome needed a certain amount of money from them, but they could tax whatever they wanted. And so, so many tax collectors were so wealthy because Rome would say, you know, we want 2% of everything everybody makes is our tax, or 5% is, is what we want. And the tax collectors would charge 10 or 15%, and they'd get to keep the rest. Rome didn't care what they did as long as Rome got theirs. And so tax collectors, their own whole level of sinners, Jesus ate with them. This is why Jesus was called a friend of sinners and tax collectors, was because of his meal with Levi. All right, Luke 7, Jesus is anointed at the home of Simon the Pharisee during a meal. You remember this is where Mary came in and anointed Jesus' feet. Luke 9, Jesus feeds 5,000 people, which is like the coolest story, and we totally gloss over what it means. Like when you think about in the context of eating and what Jesus does, he feeds 15,000 people. They didn't count men and women in those numbers, so the 5,000 people is probably more like twelve to 15,000 people because they would have had their wives and their, children's with, their children with them. But Jesus feeds all these people. He, he feeds this great multitude, and then he has 12 baskets left over. That is really clearly Jesus saying, there is enough to go around for all the people, all of God's people there's plenty for. Not only can I feed this great multitude of people, but there is a basket left over for all 12 tribes. There is a basket left over for all of God's people. And so this is what Jesus does through eating. Is He's not just saying, like, it's cool that Jesus did a miracle, and it's a pretty sweet miracle, 
But that's not all that Jesus is saying through it. Jesus is saying, there is plenty to go around. My grace is sufficient. I can provide for you. And I can't just provide, it's not that I can just provide for you. I can do something miraculous and then still have leftovers and leftovers and leftovers for days for all of God's people. Uh, Luke, Luke 10, Jesus is at the home of Mary and Martha. And there's, uh, you know, G- there's this whole idea of sitting at Jesus' feet while you eat and learning. And then uh, Luke 11, Jesus condemns the Pharisees and the teachers of the law while at a meal. John, uh, Luke 14, Jesus has a meal and he and, and instructs those listening to invite the poor and the stranger when they host a meal. Jesus uh, literally commands people to, hey, invite people outside of your tribe. You know, invite people outside of your family. Get the poor people in here. Get the strangers in here. Show them what it's like to be a part of this family of God. Let them come in. And we're going to talk about that one specifically here in a little bit. Uh, you know, this one, would all, this one, Luke 19, would freak us all out. I guarantee you there's not a person in this room that if somebody walked up to you and said, hey, uh, I'm coming to your house today. You need to throw a party for me. Every single one of uh, as extroverted as I am, I'd be like, okay, I guess. Like, sure, I guess you can come over. But this is what Jesus does with Zacchaeus. He knows Zacchaeus needs to eat a meal with him so badly that he just walks up to him and says, hey, I'm coming to your house. Go prepare a party. Invite all your friends. I'm coming over. And Zacchaeus does it. And, and you know, we're, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. And we, you know, we still sing songs about it. Luke 22, Jesus gives us a new meaning to the Passover meal. Guys, he should have been stoned right there. The disciples, if they were good Jews, should have killed him the moment he gave new meaning to the Passover. That's what Jesus can, that's what you can accomplish through meals, right? Jesus eats this meal, this Passover meal, and he says, he says, you know what? This cup has always represented Moses. This cup has always represented our deliverance, but now I'm telling you that this cup represents me. Guys, they should have killed him right there. He should have never made it to the cross. They should have taken him out in the street and killed him. That's what the law commanded that they do. You know, this is a lot like, uh, uh, this is off topic, but I just thought of this analogy that I heard one time. It's like, we all know, we're all pretty familiar with Billy Graham. We at least know who he is. He's this really famous evangelist. And it'd be like if right before uh, he dies, he says, you know what? I've been pretty good my whole life. I've done a whole lot for the kingdom of God. I've done a whole lot for Jesus and a whole lot for the church. So from now on, uh, every December 25th, uh, instead of celebrating uh, the birth of Jesus, I want you guys to celebrate me. So no more Jesus at Christmas. No more manger. No more silent night. Like We're going to change all the songs, and we're going to say Billy instead of Jesus. And so from now on, every Christmas, you guys are going to celebrate me. It's absolutely ridiculous. But this is what Jesus did over the course of a meal. Crazy stuff. Luke 24, Jesus has been resurrected, and he's on the road to Emmaus, and he meets those two guys, and he goes home and he eats with them, and he explains all the law and the prophets through the lens of what has just happened, and uh, people are saved because of it. So Jesus is putting a lot on the line every time he eats with somebody because he doesn't eat with the people that other people think that he should eat with. And he's always doing this through meals. And he's called a friend of tax collectors and sinners because he goes out and he eats with them and he, and he drinks with them. So he's putting a lot on the line. And, and, and that's true in our culture as it was in theirs. And he comes intentionally and sits and shares meals with them. And this is a Hugh Halter says, the reason Jesus is called a friend of tax collectors and sinners is because of eating with a guy named Matthew. No other religious leader would have ever eaten with Matthew. 
But if Jesus does not sit and eat with Levi, if Jesus doesn't make that decision to sit and eat with somebody that everybody else would say don't eat with, guys, we wouldn't have the gospel of Matthew. We'd be short a gospel. We'd have three. Matthew comes to Christ and follows him and becomes a disciple because of that meal at Levi's house, which everybody else but Jesus would have said, absolutely not. You can't do that. And Jesus said, watch me. And we got one of the 12 disciples from that meal. And we got a, one of our four gospels from that meal. So I just, I, I love that model. That Jesus said, my express purpose in coming is to do one of the most intimate things I can do with you. And that intimate purpose is to sit down and eat with you, to get to know you, to become your friend, to be a part of your life, to be a part of your world, you know, to, to really dig into this relationship. Because ultimately, and this is really important, Ultimately, it's Jesus who's making space for us at his table. It's not us who are making room for other people at our table. It's Jesus. It's always Jesus that's making room for us at his table. Um, you know, it's the whole picture of the New Testament. The whole picture of the New Testament begins in this garden and, and, and with eating, and it ends in a garden with eating. The, the whole goal of the Christian life is to get to the wedding feast of the Lamb, Revelation 19, right? where every tribe and tongue and nation is sitting together and we're feasting. And the angel tells John, oh, blessed is the person who's invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. Guys, the whole point of your life is to invite people to that feast. The whole point of your life in Jesus Christ is to invite people to the table so that they know that they're included because there's no quicker way to know if you're in or you're out than whether or not a group will let you eat with them and be with them. So Jesus makes a place for us at his table and we get to make a place for our neighbor, both physically and temporally right now here on earth by letting our neighbors into our space to eat and also for eternity. Through that relationship, if they, become, if they come to have a relationship with Christ, they are at that table forever. And that's all done by you saying, hey, do you guys wanna come over? I'm gonna grill burgers tonight. I gotta park a block away from my house or I gotta park next door. You wanna come over? Your, our kids can go run out and play and we'll just sit on the back deck and drink sodas and <laughs> or whatever <laughs> and have burgers and brats, you know? It's so simple, <laughs> it's so simple. Anyway, uh, from our theology, right? So you have this theology of eating and it is this God-centric thing and it is actually the point of the whole New Testament is to get people invited to this party at the end of all things, at the end of time, right? The wedding feast of the lamb comes this sociology of, of eating. So reason number two that we need to focus on it is because there's this sociology to eating. Sociology is just the study of people. The study, the study of culture and social norms and stuff like that. Uh, and, and this is the area that's going to take a bit of reshaping for us. The reason is that meals, like I, I said up front, meals are sacred for us. And most of us don't even realize that meals are sacred to us. And that's why we have to change our thinking about it. Um, the reason the meals are so sacred is because they have meaning. And we know that they have meaning. And we know that it creates this space where relationship gets deeper. You know, I, I wouldn't, um, I would have a conversation with a woman that's not my wife. I, I wouldn't quite go as far as our vice president said it's on some of those points. Like, I, I understood what he was trying to say, but I, I would have a conversation with a woman that's not my wife, but I wouldn't take her out to dinner. You know what I'm saying? 
Like, first off, my wife's a boxer, and she could probably whoop me pretty good if she tried to. And if I took another woman out to dinner, you guys might not see me for a few weeks. Or I might be wearing sunglasses up here. I think that would be the end of me. But I wouldn't do that because eating is a sacred space, and eating creates relationship. And eating together deepens a relationship to this really intimate level. And so I wouldn't do that with somebody that I didn't want to have that relationship with. And so it's, it's kind of like this, like even, even culturally kind of on the surface. Um, anybody ever been to Memphis? What do they talk about? Their barbecue. They're going to talk about their dry rub ribs. They're going to talk about their, their mustard-based sauce, or maybe that's Carolina, whatever. You know, if you go down to New Orleans, they're going to talk about their gumbo. And every single person from New Orleans that you meet is going to have a story about gumbo. And they're going to have a story about the best gumbo they've ever had. And they're going to know who made the roux, right? And they're going to know about that. You, you talk at my house, if you come over, if you spend enough time with me, especially the closer we get to the holiday season, um, here's the thing. Growing up, I'd never, I never had a traditional Thanksgiving meal. That's just not what we did. If you come to my house, we have a Thanksgiving fiesta. I don't know why. My parents were weird. They don't like turkey and stuffing, and that's okay. But that became one of my favorite childhood memories. So every Thanksgiving when I was growing up, we wouldn't have turkey, we wouldn't have stuffing, we wouldn't have the, the sweet potato pie. We would spend two days making enchiladas and chilirinos and barbacoa, and we would just have this big feast, and we would lay it out. And it's still, to my day, one of my favorite traditions. We don't get to do it every year now, but I guarantee you, if my brother Jason gets to come into town and I'm in town with my family, if all of our family is together, you better believe we're having a Thanksgiving fiesta just because that's what we do. It's who we are. We're the Bedells. We have a Thanksgiving fiesta. All of our friends know that, and most of them want to come over for it because <laughs> it's good. <laughs> so, you know, but, but for many of us, so this begins the, the, the process. I, I, want, I really want us to start processing this as far as sociology goes and our culture and what our culture tells us about eating and start to think about how this looks in your house. What does this look like in 1234 Common Street, Lansing, Kansas, you know? Um, and why do we not do it? I think one of the main reasons that we don't do it is because we're afraid that at best our days will be interrupted and at worst our days will be disrupted. And we're not sure how it's going to go. And so we let a, a few things kind of, we put up these barriers. Um, that keep us from creating this kind of culture of hospitality in our homes. And the first one is fear. The first barrier is fear. Uh, we imagine sharing our tables with other people that we don't know so well, and that creates anxiety in us. And we start thinking about like, what am I going to say? What if they don't like me? What if my spaghetti sauce is not nearly as good as I think it is, and my family's just been lying to me for 15 years? You know, and we start to think of all these things, and our mind just races and goes and goes and goes. And we will always play out. This is true for all of us, right? I try not to, but all of us will play out the worst-case scenario in our mind way before we ever start thinking about what could go right. Right? Anytime you're starting something new, we so rarely sit there and think, like, I'm going to start something new. This is going to be great. Nothing's going to go wrong with this. What could possibly happen? This is going to be the best experience of my life. That's not where we go. That's not how most of us are wired. Most of us, our first response is, oh, man, what if this goes horribly wrong? This could be the biggest mistake. What if I invest in this and it tanks and all of a sudden we're bankrupt and I've got to live on the street with my kids? I don't know what I'm going to do. Boom, we're done. Fear has won the day, and we won't, make, we won't take that step. We won't make that move. And that's the same thing with inviting people into our homes. 
we start to say, uh, you know, what if? What if it doesn't happen? I talk about my daughter Jordan every once in a while when I preach, and let me tell you something about Jordan. I don't know where she got it from. It is definitely not me, but she is a picky eater. I mean, crazy picky. Like, I don't even know. I'm pretty sure she would just eat bread and mayonnaise sandwiches for the rest of her life if I let her do that. So she's not even a good picky eater. She eats weird stuff. Anyway, we have this conversation with her all the time where I'll set something down in front of her for dinner, and she'll go, I don't like that. And I'll go, have you ever had that? And she'll go, no, but I don't like it. And so we have the conversation, four, I'm, I'm not kidding, four or five times a week, we have this conversation of, Jordan, you've got to try it. You can't know if you like something, love something, or hate something unless you try it. And if you try it, you never know, it could be your new favorite food. And that normally coaxes her into a thank you bite, as we call it. Like, she'll try it once, and, you know, it's 50-50. Maybe she likes it, maybe she doesn't, but at least she tries it, and that's all I'm trying to get her to do is just to try it and see. But uh, she had never found her favorite food from that, but there is plenty of stuff that she eats now that she didn't used to like. I'm not sure she's my daughter because she hates potato salad, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> you know, have you ever tried it? No, I don't want to have people over at my house because it's weird, it's going to be awkward, we're not going to know what to say. It, it, it'll just be a bad experience for everybody. Oh, that's great. How do you know that? Have you ever had people over at your house? Well, no, but I just assume in my mind that's how it's going to go. My mom always used to say something about assuming. I can't say it on stage here, but if you're over the age of 15, you probably know what I'm thinking right now. So you can't assume these things. You have to have people over to your house, open up your space to them, and see what God can do through these relationships. There's a lady named Deb Hirsch, and she writes these words uh, in, to, in reference to the level of security which we hold our homes in. She says, this is our space, and those we may invite into that space are carefully chosen based on whether or not they will upset the delicate status quo, inconvenience us at all, or pose a threat to our perceived safety. In other words, visitors, especially strange ones, stress us out. You know, think of the way our culture views neighbors and maybe even how you view your neighbors. I, I had to do some introspection as I was preparing this sermon, and I, I had to think about my own neighbors. Uh, you guys remember the show Home Improvement, Tim Allen? Or, yeah, you know, and he had that neighbor, Wilson, that you only ever saw this much of him. I always loved the episodes where they were in Wilson's house, and he would always have, like, he would just randomly have a ping pong paddle in front of him or something, and you never saw, you only ever saw 5% of Wilson. And that's how most of us live our lives with our neighbors. Most of us are 5% neighbors. We see each other over the fence. We wave when we're mowing the yard. Maybe if we're out walking the dog, we have a short little conversation, but we never dig in. We never really get to know them. We never make them part of our lives. They live next door to us. You know, because of the way that our house is set up, our neighbors live closer to me than our children do. There's a 15 feet between our houses, but their bedroom and our bedroom backs up to each other. My kids are on the other side of the house. So they literally live closer to me than my own children, and I didn't know their names until about two weeks ago. I've lived there for two years, you know? So those are strong words from, from Deb. And then she, she goes on and she says, and while this is in some sense culturally understandable, in other words, it's sociologically normal, the negative result in terms of our spirituality is that the family has effectively become a very dangerous idol. 
and culture has once again triumphed spiritual, our, our social responsibility. So really quickly, let me just put it this way. If you are a Christ follower, if you're here today and you're a Christian and you are a Christ follower, your relationship with Jesus will always, should always, and has to always trump what culture demands. It's fine that it's culturally acceptable for us to lock our doors, put up six-foot privacy fences, and never talk to anybody around us. That's culturally acceptable. But it's not okay if you're a Christ follower. It's not okay if you follow Jesus. It's not okay if you say, Jesus is God's son, and the most important thing in my life is to invite people to the wedding feast of the Lamb. You can't lock your doors. I mean, you can put up a six-foot privacy fence. I don't care if you put up a fence, but don't put up a fence around your heart. That's silly. You know, invite people in. You have to. You can't put up all these barriers and live your life in isolation and say, I'm good. I got my ticket punched. I'm going to the feast, so I don't care if anybody else comes with me. Because that's a problem. Because the one thing the person throwing the party told you to do was to invite other people. If you invited two people to your house and you said, hey, I want you two guys to come over, but you all need to invite five people. And everybody you tell, tell them to invite five people. And you tell them to invite five people. I want to have 150 people at my house. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be a blowout. And then the two people that you invited show up and they're by themselves. And you say, where is everybody? Who'd you invite? And they say, oh, well, it's a busy week. I didn't. I didn't invite anybody. I kind of thought that he would invite a lot of people and that there would still be plenty of people here. And he was like, well, I didn't invite anybody. I thought you would invite people. And nobody gets invited and you have all this food and all this prep work that you've done and all these things and you have two people show up when you're expecting 150. That's the picture I want in your head. That's why it's so important for us to invite people to that feast. So we have to ask ourselves a question, what what would it look like uh, to invite others to share our meals? What would our neighborhoods begin to look like if we started doing this? What would our homes start to look like? What would our relationships with the people around us every day start to look like? And you know, for for most of us, uh, this is like I'm talking about your neighborhood, but we have several different neighborhoods in our lives, right? Uh, I have the neighborhood that I live in. This is also a neighborhood. I have people that I work with, that I, I do life with, eight hours a day, four or five days a week. You know, we're here together, and this is a neighborhood for me, and so your work is another neighborhood for you, and the places where your kids play ball, you know, if you've got a kid on a team, that's a community for you, that's a neighborhood for you. What would those places start to look like if you started to say, I'm gonna do the hard work, I'm gonna dig in deep, and I'm gonna build some relationship with these people? That's how God created us. That's how God formed us. He was fully aware of what happens when we share meals with one another. And that's why throughout Scripture, over and over and over again, that's the picture that's painted for us. That's the picture we see throughout Scripture is this wedding feast, this imagery of us sitting down to a meal together because it's important. You know, what would it look like if your neighbor could just pop over and be like, hey, I really have some errands to run. Would you mind watching my kids for an hour? you know how much I would immediately love my neighbor if we had the relationship where I could be like, I have got to leave my girls with you for just one hour. They'll play at the park. They'll play in your backyard. Just if you could keep an eye on them. You know, when you have kids, you know how it's, there, there is no quick trip to the store if you got to take your kids with you. 
There is no quick errand if you've got to take your kids with you. It is a fiasco every time. You've got to get them in the car. You've got to get them buckled up. They take five minutes to get out of the car, and you're like, hurry up. And then they slam the door, and you're like, don't slam the door. And it just takes so much time. But if you had that relationship with your neighbors where they could walk up to you, do you know how quickly you could start to speak into their life if you became somebody that they could trust for those simple things? And how you get there is you get to know them. And how you get to know them is through eating. You know, one of the notes that they made in here for us was, uh, and I, I think that I actually agree with it, is uh, they were like, and when you start to eat with your neighbors, make sure it's the messiest thing possible. Because there's no pride when you're slathered in barbecue sauce from eating ribs. There's no, there's, no, there's no walls left up if you take them out to Buffalo Wild Wings and you're covered in hot sauce and you're out of napkins and you're just going, what to do with my hands, you know? So just go eat a messy meal with somebody. Uh, Joan earlier said spaghetti. Just bring them over for spaghetti because nobody looks cool. Everybody thinks they look cool trying to twirl it on the fork, but everybody just looks ridiculous. And then you whip the noodle and the sauce goes everywhere. You're going to get to know people really fast, so do that. I love it. Anyway, the second barrier. Oh, no, I love this idea. Okay, so I, I, I was going to say, you know, my wife and I are going to do this, but what I actually mean by that is that I said to my wife yesterday, hey, we should do this, and she didn't immediately say no. So I think you're telling me there's a chance. We might do this. You should go home and Google turquoise table and a lady named, a lady named Kirsten Shell. And what she did was she moved to this new area with her family, her husband and, and her kids, and they didn't know anybody. They were completely out of community. They had moved away from a place where they'd been for a really long time, and they moved in, and they didn't know anybody. So she goes and she buys this old picnic table, and she paints it turquoise, and she puts it in their front yard instead of their backyard. And every night, her family would eat dinner out of that table, and she, is, she says she was shocked at how quickly people became to come and sit with them and how quickly their neighbors would bring their own plates out from their home and just come sit down and talk to them and eat. And every time somebody walked by as they were walking their dog, they would stop and it would turn into a 15-minute conversation. And within just a few months, this turquoise table in their front yard had become the hub of the neighborhood. And every night of the week, you could find five or ten people, even on nights their family was gone. The neighborhood just knew, hey, we're going to come, we're going to sit together at this table, and we're going to get to know each other, and we're going to eat together. And sometimes they'd do big barbecues, and they would feed everybody, and sometimes everybody would just walk with a plate from their own home and just be like, hey, we're going to sit down and talk for a little while. I love that idea. It is a perfect example of what we're talking about. And, and I want to do it. Maybe it's not a turquoise table. Maybe I'm going to paint some chairs turquoise because I've always wanted to build a fire pit in my front yard for the neighborhood and have kids come over, and they could, they could do hot dogs or do s'mores, or they could do that, and we could have a fire you know, try to have a fire every night throughout the summer and be this place where our neighborhood could commune and we could get to know the people around us. The second barrier that we lack is we, we say we lack the margin to do this. And, and what I mean by that, I'm going to make tracks through this real fast. I don't want to keep you guys too much long. I'm long-winded, but I don't want to keep you forever. Um, we, we, we say that we lack the margin. We say that we lack the time to do this. I, I would take people out for lunch. I, I would have people over for dinner, but I'm just too busy. I, I just don't have the time. I, it would take too much time out of my schedule. My day is crazy. I, I can't do it. Uh, you know, we say some, some version of that, but really, if we're honest with ourselves, we all know as soon as we say that, that's just a tactic to cover our fear. It goes back to that first one. We're afraid, so we find an excuse. Everybody in this room gets somewhere in the neighborhood of 21 meals a week. Some of us eat a few less, some of us eat a few more, 
but you get breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day of the week just like everybody else. Why couldn't you take somebody out to lunch with you? You're going to eat anyway. You're going to go out for lunch. Or you're going to sit around a table at work with the lunch that you've brought. Why can't you invite people to do that with you? You're going to eat dinner. You're going to make dinner for your kids. Some nights it's dry cereal or breakfast bars. But, you know, on most nights I'm a good parent. And we're, we tried our best to, to make sure that our kids have great food every night. You know, and so why wouldn't you just say like, hey, you know what? We can't hang out all night. We've got some stuff going, but we're going to eat at seven or at six, you know, why don't you guys come over? I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll make extra for you. We've got plenty for you. Why don't you come over and hang out with us for an hour? You do it anyway. So you just have to commit to yourself. You know what? I'm not going to let fear control me and what I do for the kingdom. I'm going to say, yeah, I'm going to do this and I will find the margin that I need to make this happen. Um, we just, we have to start thinking, we can't think of time as a barrier. We can't think of time in the, in the regards of time will always stop me from doing this. We need to think of it as an ally. Time is our ally when it comes to eating because we're all going to do it anyway. We are all going to spend time eating, every single person in here. And so if you're already going to spend the time eating, why not be intentional with it? Which brings us to the last point, the missiology uh, uh, of eating, which just means eating with a purpose, eating on mission. Okay? And, uh, Jesus, basically, if I wanted to reinterpret the Great Commission, just use a couple different words, Jesus basically says, go therefore into all nations and eat. Go into all nations and make disciples, build relationship, dig in deep, get to know people, teach them and instruct them and do all these things. And how do we do that? What's the easiest way to let somebody know that they're in is to eat with them. And so Jesus says, I want you to be on mission with me. I want you to do these things. And I want you to be intentional about bringing people in to the kingdom of God. And one of the easiest ways we can do that is to choose to eat with them. You know, we'll make it really, I'll make it really easy for you. Like some of us, we, we go, I don't know what to do. I, I, I can't invite people over. I'm not that good of a cook anyway. And, and I just, I don't know when is the right time. What can we do? Maybe you live in a neighborhood and you've got a bunch of K-State fans around you. Maybe, you know, everybody around you is a Royals fan. For me, it's Royals and Chiefs, right? Maybe you're a Chiefs fan. You have this whole season where it's just so natural to shoot out a note to, the, you know, the 10 houses around you and say, hey, there's a game on Sunday at 3. Why don't you guys come over for it? I'll make, I'll make one or two things, and if you guys can all grab a side and bring it over, Let's just, let's hang out and watch the game. Or, hey, we're going to do a tailgate in our own driveway. I'm going to put the game on the radio because it's better on the radio anyway. And then we're going to have our tail, we're going to drop our tailgates right there in our driveway and just grill and hang out, set up a couple pop tents and, and go for it. That's so low pressure. That's so low key because even in those awkward silences, if they arise, there's always the game to watch, right? There's always the game to listen to. You could take the pressure off of yourself and not overthink it. So you always, have, you always have that option. And another place that we're able uh, to, to meet our neighbors and further relationships is the holidays. The holidays is a really natural time to be able to say, hey, you know what? It's Christmas. We're going to do a little neighborhood Christmas party. Why don't you guys come over for this? We'll just make some snack stuff. We'll set out some Chex Mix, and maybe you do a gift exchange. Maybe you don't. But you just have people over. And there are these natural times throughout the year where we can have people over. So I want to challenge you guys. Um, this week, I want you to start thinking about this question. How many meals a week can I give away? Oh, that's a game. 
uh, how many meals a week can I give away? And I want everybody to think about that, whether you're very young and you're in here or, or you're very old and you're in here, whether you're male or female, I want you to start thinking about that. If you're a dad and you've got a, a 40 hour a week job, I want you to start thinking how many people can I take to lunch this week? If you're a mom and, and, and you're working, I want you to think how many ladies can I invite out for coffee in the mornings or how many ladies can I take out for lunch this week? Think about how many meals you can give away. How many times in a week could you intentionally be giving away a meal? Maybe as a family you decide, you know what, we're going to do a pizza night every Thursday and we're just going to invite over all of our neighbors, the five houses right around us or the ten houses right around us. We're going to invite them every Thursday. And we're going to say, hey, come on over, chip in for some pizza, and we'll just kind of hang out in our house. We'll play some games, and the kids can run around in the room or, or whatever. So start thinking that way. If you're a kid, if you're in school, I know it's summer vacation, so you've got some time to plan on this. But if, if you're going back to school in the fall, and you're in junior high and high school, and you get that choice of where to sit, start thinking about how many people could I intentionally sit with that don't have somebody to sit with them? or have that blank stare in the first two weeks and they're just looking for a table with a set of friendly eyes saying, yeah, come on. No, you're absolutely, man. You're in, you're in, you're in our group. Come on over. You know, so start thinking about that intentionally. Now, I know you're asking yourself, this is, what do we do when we eat? This is the big question, right? So I, I'm sure that since this was awesome, you guys are all convinced that you need to be doing this. So now the next question is, How? What do we talk about when we're doing this stuff? Well, I think that that stuff happens really naturally, you know? That stuff happens naturally when we eat with people. And we eat. What do you do when you eat with people? You eat. You laugh. You tell stories. You crack jokes. You talk about your life. You ask them questions, and then you be quiet and let them answer you and tell you their stories. It's so simple. We do it naturally every day, and we just... As soon as it involves a stranger or somebody that we don't already know real well, we freeze for whatever reason. But it, if you would do this, if you would foster conversation with your neighbors, if you would look at the people around you and you would say, you matter to me, not only, but especially because you matter to Jesus. And as a Christ follower, I believe that my one job is to get you a seat at that table. And the easiest way for me to do that is to give you a seat at my table. You know, meals were so important to Jesus that um, one of the very last things that he did was uh, share a meal with his disciples. And, and we, we talk about this all the time when we talk about communion. Um, Jesus shared this meal with his disciples, and this is the meal where he instituted communion. This is a, a meal where he replaced Moses, right? Like I talked about earlier, this is the meal where that happened. And every week we, we do this because he says, every time you do this, remember me. And he instituted this during a meal. And so it's what we do every week is a representation of that meal. He took bread and he broke it, so we take the bread. And he lifted the wine glass that during the Passover Seder used to, used to signify Moses. And he said, this is my blood now that I'm going to spill for you. And so when you do these two things, when my body is broken, when you take this bread and my blood that's spilled, you take this wine, when you do this, remember me. And that's why we do that every week. And, and, and it was over a meal. And there's one thing about this meal that always just stupefies me. I don't get it. And I know that I've talked about it on this stage before, and Lance has mentioned it uh, in different contexts before. But, you know, one of the things that I always talk about 
um, is the, uh, during the foot washing. You know, this is the same meal where Jesus washed the feet of his disciples, is that he washed Judas's feet. Literally moments before he knew he was going to go out and betray him. But here's the thing that, that almost as much as that, probably even more than that, just boggles my mind. What was Jesus, what was Judas even doing at the table? Jesus wanted that one last chance to, to pour into him, that one last chance for a relationship, that one last chance to eat a meal together and to talk to him and to pour into him. Maybe there's a chance. Maybe it wouldn't be Judas. Maybe it would happen some other way. Maybe it's not one of my 12. What was Judas even doing at the table? I guarantee you, as, as, as much as I love Jesus, I am still very sinful and, and carnal in my mind sometimes. And if I knew that a friend had betrayed me and was going to betray me even unto my death, the last place he would be that night would be at my dinner table with me pouring relationship into him. But that's the God we serve, is that even though he knew that this was gonna happen, even though he knew what Judas was gonna do, even though he knew the course of history and the road that it was gonna take, he invited him to his table one last time. And he said, let me be in relationship with you. Let me pour into you. And so we do that when we remember this. We remember that Jesus made room for us at his table. And so it, it doesn't matter what things you've done. Jesus has room for you. It doesn't matter where you've been. If, you, if you're so ashamed that you can't look at yourself in the mirror, I'm telling you, you have value to Jesus so much so that he saved a seat for you. And if you're a Christ follower, your one job as a Christian is to get people to that seat at the wedding feast of the Lamb in Revelation 19, where all of God's people, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, no walls divide us, no borders define us. We are all God's people, and we're all sitting at this table as one, and there are plenty of seats. God can feed a great multitude and still have plenty left over for the entire nation of God. For all of God's people, there's plenty and our one job is to go forward into this world and just say, hey, do you want to come over for some ribs tomorrow? How easy is that? Hey, there's a Chiefs game on tomorrow afternoon. Do you want to come over for some burgers and watch the game with me? You build these relationships intentionally so that people have a chance to know Jesus. And if we can't do that, then we're that friend that got invited to the party that didn't invite anybody else. I don't want to have that conversation with Jesus. Not because I'm scared of what he's going to say, but because I want to be the guy that brings the crew. I want to sit down at that table, and I want Jesus to say, dude, look at this. This is awesome. I can't believe you brought so many people. I never thought you would invite so many people. I'm so proud of you. That's, the, that's our one goal, is to bring people to this feast. I love to eat. I love parties. Why wouldn't I want to invite everybody? You know, as we think about communion, I, I just want you just to be thinking about this. The gospel of Jesus Christ, guys, what we live out every day, what we do every day as a Christ follower, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not about who God is against. It is about who God is for. 
And God is for everyone. So invite them to come along. So as you think about communion, I want you to right now to start thinking about the neighbors that you're going to invite. I want you to right now think about the coworkers you're going to invite out for lunch. I want you right now to think about that estranged relationship within your own family because those are your neighbors too. Who can I call up and have a meal with this week? Because God is for them, not against them. And God's heart is for that table to be full. Every man, every woman, every child. But he's given us the solemn responsibility of making the invites.